Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. We're dealing with some deep, weighty, at times hard to process truths about God. Namely, this morning, from the 29th verse of the 8th chapter of Romans, we're going to be talking about God's election and God's predestination. We started wading into that water last week, looking at the term there in Romans 8, 29, God's foreknowledge. And what I did as we looked at that term is I explained what a common understanding of that term is and showed you why I believed that it does not mean God's omniscience, that it does not mean that God stood in eternity past and looked down into the halls of history throughout all of eternity forward and saw the individuals that were going to choose His Son and then decided to choose them because He knew they would choose His Son. I spent the message explaining why I believe that that is absolutely an implausible interpretation of that word. And we looked at every use in the New Testament that uses that word related to God. And that in none of those five uses in my estimation with the context can mean that interpretation. And so what I explained was that God's foreknowledge is God setting His love upon a people. It is a statement about relationship, not a knowledge of facts. And so what I want to do this morning in a springboard from that, we're going to look at Romans 8, 29 again, and we're going to look at two additional words. One of them is in the text and one of them is not. The first word is election. It's not in the text, but it is a word that is used synonymously, the same idea as the word foreknowledge. And so I want to give you the biblical definition and the biblical evidence, a few of them, of the election of God. And then we'll look at the second word, predestination, as we continue to unpack this great saving program of God that's given to us in five great words in verses 29 and 30. Let me read just the context here, verses 28, 29, and 30. Paul wrote, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, as we prepare to wade out into these deep doctrines again this morning. Let me just start by giving you three statements 
And these are coming from a pastor's heart because I know that for many, these doctrines are really hard to deal with. That they are upsetting if they are doctrines that you have not looked at before, that on the surface they look like they are actually defaming God. And I say that in all sincerity because I say it based upon my own history. That was me. Some 12 or 13 years ago, I began a journey into the consideration of these doctrines that I had in the past, in in my upbringing, in my spiritual training as a young man and growing up in the group of Christians that I grew up within. Man, I was passionate about objecting to these very doctrines And it was a journey for me. It was stretching. It was wrestling. It was hard for me. And so, I want to come alongside of you if that's you as we're working through this as a pastor. And I want to say to you, I'm praying for you. I'm hurting for you as you're hurting. But I want to give you Just three statements, hopefully, that will help you navigate these waters. Number one is this. Give yourself time. Give yourself time. Don't be impatient with yourself. This does not come at one setting. You cannot digest it in a day, in a message. It's something that you have to This is my opinion now. Remember, this was me, so I'm not faulting anyone here, but it is a process of growth. You have to grow in character throughout your Christian life. That's learning to do the things that God wants you to do like Jesus. And you have to grow in your mind. You have to learn to think the thoughts of Christ, to put on the mind of Christ. It's just a part of our spiritual growth. Everybody has to walk through it. As a matter of fact, I have not met a person that did not have a struggle that I've specifically talked to about these that did not have a struggle in a period of time where they had to work through these ideas. So give yourself time. Number two, when the going gets rough, Remember this principle or think this thought. Let the truths that you do know about God help you to have peace with the truths that you do not understand about God. What you do know about Him, the great things that you do know about His love and His character and His grace and His kindness and His long-suffering, let those things that you do know Help you to be okay with the things that you do not know. And then number three, if these are doctrines that you just cannot accept or cannot accept right now, and again, I mean this with all sincerity, if you work through these and you just cannot come to grips with these doctrines, 
then focus on the truths of God that you do know that cause you great joy and lift you up and build your faith. Focus on those things. These doctrines that we're talking about, I believe they're very, very, very foundational and critical, but they're not the determination of your salvation. Jesus Christ is your Savior. It's your faith in Him and Him alone that determines your destiny. So let's begin here and look at these two words for today. The first one that is very similar to the term foreknowledge in Romans 8.29, for those God foreknew, He also predestined. Remember that idea of foreknowledge from last week is God choosing to set His saving love upon a people. Like God in the Old Testament talking about Him knowing the chosen people, the Jews, like He didn't know anyone else in all of the earth. His knowledge of them, not head knowledge, but relational knowledge. So what does this term election that is similar to that term mean? First of all, let me just define it. To elect means to select or to choose out. To select or to choose out. It is referring to God selecting certain individuals that are a part of the human race and determining to choose them to be the objects of His eternal love. Very similar, synonymous with that term foreknowledge that we looked at last week. Now, the doctrine of election cannot be denied from Scripture, but what happens with it is that there are basic two main camps related to election that are very similar to what we talked about last week with foreknowledge. There is one camp that says that the ones that God elected, ones God chose, are the ones that He looked down through history and saw would choose Him, and so He chose them because He saw that they would choose Him. God taking the act, the passive part, the individual being the main primary first actor in that God saw they were going to move toward Him, choose Him, and so He chose them. The second understanding of election is very different. And it's the understanding that I believe is undeniable from Scripture. And it is this. It is God, based upon His own choice, with no outside influence affecting that decision in any way, from before time began in His eternal decrees, chose to select certain members of the human race to lavish His love upon eternally. Let me give you some biblical evidence. I could give you Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. I'm just going to give you two or three. I had... Just taking a few of them, I had two pages of eight and a half by 11 
just solid scriptures that I was running over trying to figure out which one of these to use, but we have such a limited amount of time this morning. I'll just pick two, Romans 9, 11 to 13. Romans 9 comes after Romans what? Romans 8. Romans 8 is where we're at. Romans 8 is talking about, particularly in the last home stretch here, the end of Romans 8, he's talking about the eternal purposes of God in salvation. He's talking about God's election or His foreknowledge, His predestination, His calling, His justification, and His glorification of the saints, and how if God has purposed to do that, nothing is going to stop Him from following that through to the end so that no one can snatch us out of His hands. And then he comes to Romans chapter 9, which follows Romans chapter 8, and what he does is he, in human history, unpacks that truth of God's saving campaign. He says, the truth that I just taught you, let me explain it and how it works itself out in human history, how it worked itself out for the Jews in the past and the Gentiles and how it's going to work itself out into the future. That's where we're going in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But he's explaining that doctrine. And he comes to Romans chapter 9, 11 to 13, and he picks a famous example from history. A father and a mother with two children, Jacob and Esau. And he uses this family and these two kids, the children of Isaac and Rebekah, He uses them as an illustration to drive the truth about election home. And he says this, Though they, though Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she, Rebecca the mother, was told the younger will serve The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I want you to see how Paul is diligently trying to make his point here over and over again. He starts by saying, God chose one of Rebekah and Isaac's children. He chose Jacob. Before either of them had done it, they were still in the womb. They had done nothing good or bad. He chose one. Secondly, he drives this truth deeper by saying that his choice of the one was based upon his eternal purposes. He says it right there in the second part of that verse, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And then third, he drives the truth even deeper and hits it again when he says explicitly, it was not because of works that God chose the one, not the other. Listen, this is the omniscient God saying that. It's not because he looked down through human history from time past and saw that one of them would do this, and so he chose Jacob because he saw what Jacob would do. No, it specifically says that he did it not because of their works, simply based upon his purpose. That's election. That's election. 
So God's grace in election is choosing certain members of the human race that He is going to set His love upon, that He's going to lavish with His eternal saving love and grace. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, 4-6. Second verse. That He, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You see the same idea here? Those whom God elects, when were they chosen? Before the foundation of the world. That's when they were chosen And what was God's plan for those that He chose? That they should be holy and blameless before Him. Number three, what does He do for everyone whom He chooses or elects? What does He do for them? He predestines them to adoption. How many of them? All of them He predestines to adoption. And number four, what is it that governs God's entire saving campaign that includes election, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification? What is all of it based upon? It's all based upon according to the purpose of His will. That is exactly what Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 says. That all of those five things in Romans 8, 29, and 30 are all based on the last statement of Romans 8, 28, and that's for those who call or are called according to His purpose. It's the eternal purposes of God that have put into place this saving paradigm, this saving campaign that involves these five great things that are all of God, none of man. I'll leave it just with that two scriptures. But there are many, many scriptures that refer to election, not only in the Old Testament, New Testament, but in the Old. So here's the summary. That God's election is unconditional. That means that it is not because some were more lovely than the others that He chose to set His love upon them. And the second truth about God's election is that it's unconstrained. Unconstrained. Here's what that means. It means that His choice is not based upon anything outside of Himself. No external influence was a contributing factor to His decision to elect those He elected. It is all to do with Him. Not anything to do with us. Unconditional and unconstrained. God elects, He chooses to set His love upon and make certain members of the human race the objects of His special love resulting in their salvation and ultimate glorification. So, the next big word that we come to is that those God foreknew or elected, He also predestined. Let's look at that word for a minute. It's very simple to define. I probably don't even need to define it. I'm sure that 
vast majority in here already understand that word. It means simply what it looks like it means. It means that God predetermines the destiny ahead of time. That God, for those that He elects, He determines what their eternal destiny is going to be. He predestines it. So, based upon His eternal purposes, what God does is that He chooses a people for Himself, a people to be His own possession, a people to lavish His special love upon. That's election. And then He follows that choice by doing something that's going to guarantee that it reaches its full consummation. And what does He do? He predestines everyone He elects, determining their eternal destiny. Now, that's just an understanding now of God's foreknowledge, God's election, and God's predestination. Here's the next track to pursue, though. That doesn't solve the problems. That doesn't solve the major objections that many have, that I used to have, to that doctrine of election or predestination. So what I want to do is I want to just explore a few of the primary objections in the few minutes that I have left this morning, the second half of this message. And I want to tell you this. I forgot, I forgot to do this last week in the second service. I did it in the first service and got some response from it. But what I would like you to do is as we go through this, the questions that you have that you struggle with or that loom large on your horizon related to this doctrine of election or predestination. I'm not talking about scriptures that you think refute it because what I'm going to do in the weeks to come is I'm going to go to the several of the main texts that look on the surface like they refute these doctrines and I'm going to explain them. So I want you to hold those for now. But if But if you have philosophical questions or objections or struggles with these doctrines, I want you to email them. You got your worship folder, you get the church email, go on the website and email the office what your questions are and I will do my best as we uh, go through uh, the next uh, few weeks to answer some of those in each service like I'm going to do right now. A few of the ones that I'm going to mention this morning came in last week after Sunday's service. Here's the first objection that I want to speak to. There are many that say that if election and predestination are true, what that does is it strips man of his free will. that the obvious conclusion 
to predestination or election and predestination is that man is ripped of his will to choose. So let's talk about that for a minute. And in order to do that, we have to come to a common understanding of a term. Because if we don't, we'll be talking about the same thing but meaning something different and we will not be able to work through any reasonable, logical, deductive process. What does the term, rhetorical question, what does the term or the phrase free will mean to you? Man's free will. So let's talk about what that term means to some, what it has meant historically to the church all the way back to the second century. If by the term you mean this, if you mean that free will is that humans are self-determined, then I would say I agree with that. Meaning this. You have been given by God the ability to make your own decisions. You make your money, you choose what house to buy. You choose what city to live in. You choose what to spend your money on. You choose what to eat for breakfast, what kind of candy bar you want to have for a snack. You are self-determining in those ways. But that was not and should not be our understanding of free will. Because if we bring that self-determining reality about ourselves into the equation, we convolute the subject. A better term for that is that we are free agents or we have free agency. We have the right given to us by God to make those kind of decisions. And because we are given that right, the decisions that we make, we can either choose to do right or we can choose to do wrong. God gives us that privilege and that makes us moral and responsible for our actions. Because we are free agents, we are moral and responsible for the decisions that we make that are right or wrong. But the term free will is a different term, historically. All the way back to the second century, as the early Christians were defining and getting to understand these doctrines, this was the understanding of free will. So listen to this definition and ask yourself, does the human race have this? The ability to choose all the moral options that a situation offers. Does the human race have the ability to choose all the moral options that a situation offers? Now, just rhetorical question. Think about that for a minute. Let me answer it. Does a human, let's just talk about an unsaved individual, has not come to Christ, has not been remade, has not been justified, does that person have the ability 
to choose all of the moral options that a situation offers. I say to you, that's impossible. That's an absolute biblical impossibility because of what? We're dead without Christ. We are in bondage and enslaved to sin. We cannot choose the right way. We cannot, by our own spiritual calisthenics, by our own will, by our own effort, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and live according to the revealed will of God. That's impossible. Because we're dead. So, if that's your understanding of free will, then I would say, absolutely not. Man does not have a free will. Prior to Christ, we are in bondage and in slavery and dead and enemies of God and objects of His wrath. That's what Scripture says that we are prior to Christ. But then what happens at salvation? What is the miracle that happens at salvation? Here's the miracle. Freedom. That's the miracle. Freedom. We're not free before we're saved. We are free when we are saved and forward. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul wrote, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Jesus went to the cross. He paid the price for sin, was put in a tomb. Then He fought His way back out of the tomb and won victorious life and freedom. And that's the freedom He gives to you and me so that when we are elected and predestined and eventually called and justified, then and only then are we free. Before that, we are enslaved. On the other side of Christ, we are free. So we are not free moral agents. We are not men and women with the free will prior to knowing Christ. We were dead. And what had to happen is that God in eternity past had to elect us and say, I'm setting my love upon you. I'm choosing you for my very own. And then he, with that election, predestined what would happen to you for eternity. And then in combination with that, in a moment of time in history, if you're saved or if you're going to be saved, He sends forth a calling. That's what we're going to talk about next week. A calling that is effective in accomplishing what the call goes forth to accomplish. And then once He has brought you to life in that calling and regenerated you, then He quickens your faith. He gives you the faith to believe. And then, and only then, can you choose Christ. And then, and every time then, will you choose Christ. So, this objection to the doctrine of election and predestination that says, man, that doctrine strips man of his free will. It's actually the opposite of that. 
Do you see that? It is actually the fact that without being elected and predestined, you have no free will. And only when you are elected and predestined do you begin to operate in the realm of freedom of choice with the actual power of God in you, both to will and to act according to His good purpose. Absolutely the opposite of what it looks like from the surface. Second objection, and I think, and by the way, let me just, i got to give this illustration. I love this illustration. Henry Ironside, a preacher of another generation, told the story of a man that he had share his personal testimony, his story of coming to Christ in his church, one of the members of his church. Of a gray-haired, godly saint. And he stood up one morning and he talked about how God had sought him out and had loved him and had called him and had saved him and had sanctified him and cleansed him. Gave a great witness to the saving campaign for the glory of God in his life. When that service was over, one of the other gentlemen in the church met him out in the lobby in the foyer and he pulled him aside and he said, you know, I really appreciated what you said today, but you left part of it out. You talked about everything that God did in your salvation. And that's great, but you didn't say what you did in your salvation. Salvation has some of God's work and some of your work, and you didn't tell us what your work was. And the man said, oh, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. You are absolutely right. I should have talked about what I did in the process of my salvation and not just what God did. And here's what I did. I ran away and God came and ran me down and saved me. That's the truth of salvation. It is all of God and none of us. That's what Paul is driving at here. That's what he is trying to get solidly in our minds to show us that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to His purpose. Why? Because God foreknows you, He elects you, and then He predestines you, and then He calls you, and then He justifies you, and then He glorifies you. God is going to set in motion for every one that He elects the full package that's going to wind up in your eternal glory. So here's what you can know based upon who God is and His immutable, unchanging character, and that is that everything that comes into your life, if you're a son or a daughter of God, Everything is going to be for your ultimate good. Everything. Let's go to the second objection. And this second objection, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm speaking to this again from my experience because it was my passionate objection, the one that I held most passionately to these doctrines it is that if election and predestination are true, then God is an unjust God. 
that God is not a fair God. He chooses some based upon exclusively himself and he doesn't choose others. That is not fair. Let's explore that for a minute. Let me just open that up by asking this question. Do you want a fair God? If God treated you fairly, what would you get? You would get hell. You would get hell. I would get hell. I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I was an enemy and a rebel of God. I sinned against His holiness, against His holy law. I deserve hell and His eternal punishment for sinning against His infinite holiness. I deserve infinite punishment because I sinned against His infinite holy love. I'm glad that I don't get what's fair if that's my definition of fairness. Ladies and gentlemen, the thing that is shocking, the thing that is amazing is not that God saves some, chooses some. That's not the amazing thing. The amazing thing is that He chooses anybody. Amen? He chose you if you're a son or a daughter of God. That's the amazing thing. It's not amazing that He doesn't choose others. That's what He should be doing to you and me. The amazing thing is that He chose anyone. Illustration. This is going to be a pretty poor illustration. Again, we're dealing with infinite ideas here. But I'll Just use it to try to get your mind thinking this way. By the way, I couldn't have done that about a year ago. I got new knees now. Yeah, praise God. Thanks, brother. If I had had five $100 bills in my pocket, I never have five $100 bills in my pocket. But if I had five $100 bills in my pocket, and I took the people on these first three rows right here, four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, 20-some. And if I just pulled those five $100 bills out and I gave one and I gave one and I gave one. Yeah, Brandy wants it. And I gave one and I gave one. The other 15 or 16 would say what? That's not fair. That's not fair. Is that true? Whose money was it? 
It's my money. Don't I have the right as a free agent to do what I want to do with my own money? It's not that I'm not fair to the other 15. It's just that I was really kind to the five. Those are two different things. Two different things. God's election does not work on both the positive and the negative side. It works only on the positive side. God has the right to do what God chooses to do. Now, if you think I'm dreaming that up, let me show you in Romans chapter 9, that is exactly the objection that the people of Paul's day raised to what Paul was teaching and cried out, wait a minute, you're saying if God elects and predestines that He is an unjust God. Romans chapter 9. Right on the heels of this teaching in Romans chapter 8. Verse 14 of chapter 9. What shall we say then based upon God choosing Jacob and not choosing Esau? What shall we say then, verse 14? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying God has the right to be God. It's God's grace. He can give it to whom He wants to give it to. It's God's mercy. He can extend it to who He wants to extend it to. And what He has chosen to do is extend it to His elect. And He follows that by predestining them to eternity with Him. It's exactly the same argument. It's stated directly in the text. And That's just one of the great proofs that this is what the terms mean because it's exactly the same way the people of Paul's day rose up and said, wait a minute, that doesn't look right. That doesn't look right. You're saying that God is not a fair, just God. And Paul says, listen, God is God. It's all His. Everyone deserves wrath. Everyone deserves punishment. And God in His eternal decrees has chosen that to some He is going to elect and predestine. And God has the right as God to do that. You see, in the discussion about man's free will, one of the things that I neglected to say was it really helps to set the stage for that is if you understand that God has two categories of His will. He has His primary will, which is His secret will, His inscrutable will. In other words, a will that you and I cannot know, that God has not revealed to us. He doesn't let us peer into it. Our finite minds don't have the ability. That's His 
primary, his foundational will, his inscrutable will, the secret will. And then there is his revealed will, which is right here. This is his commandments, his precepts that he's given to us so that we can know him, so that we can know what his will is for us and how we're supposed to live. So those are two categories of God's will, his inscrutable or secret will and his revealed will. And what we cannot understand is the secret will of God. And the secret will of God is His will related to His eternal decrees concerning salvation. He does not let us look into those. But it says all over, and we've looked at many of the passages in the last two weeks, that God does have eternal purposes that He is working out that are aligned with His will. And He's going to accomplish those. So is God unjust if election and predestination are true? Paul says, God is God, Romans 11, 14, 15. And then he comes to the end of the chapter, chapter 11, chapters 9, 10, and 11. What Paul does in those three chapters is that he expounds upon in human history the truth that's at the end of Romans 8, these divine purposes of God. He then comes to 9, 10, and 11, and he says, I'm going to show you how God's divine purposes towards salvation works themselves out in human history. And so he gives us this great sweeping scope of human his- history related to his divine purposes of salvation. And he comes to the end of that treatment in Romans eleven thirty three, and he says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How un." Searchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Do you hear what he's saying there? He explains that paradigm, that campaign of God's saving purposes toward the human race, and he comes to the end of that treatment. He says, Oh, the judgments of God related to his salvation of the elect, they are unsearchable. They are inscrutable. They are beyond our finite little brain's ability to get our heads around. He has hidden them from us. Another illustration. Again, this was Brad Suter. I would bring my little dried-out sponge representing my intellectual capacity to the doctrine of God's eternal decrees and salvation, and I would say, I would come to that ocean, that unfathomable depth of the infinite knowledge and wisdom of God in those decrees. And I would say, I'm not going to believe these unless I can soak up all the water in that ocean. It's ridiculous for me to do that. God is infinitely beyond the parameters of my little feeble understanding. That's what Paul is saying in Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments. They're beyond 
tracing out. I'm going to come at it one more direction. Think of a few other attributes of God that you know. Let's take a very common one, power. God's power. How much power does God have? All. It's omniscient. God's power blows our minds. It's so infinitely beyond what we can comprehend. In fact, the Bible explicitly says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ever think or imagine. That's saying that His power knows no limits and we got these little minds that have limits and God's power is infinitely beyond that. And you know what we do with that? We say, Hallelujah, God! Yeah, I'm glad that that's the kind of God you are. That's the kind of God that needs to be on the throne, that His power blows the limits of our finite little feeble understandings. Then we come to the attribute of the love of God, and we say, wow, the love of God. Oh, the love of God. How great is the love of God? Does it have a limit? No, it doesn't have a limit. Get your head around this. That God, the holy, eternal, creator, omnipotent being of the universe, perfect in all of His ways, took His co-equal, co-eternal Son, and He sent Him to have His flesh torn apart and spikes driven in Him. God hung on a cross and God accomplished that murder. That's what the Bible says. Get your mind around that. Can you? No, you cannot. That is the greatest picture of the love of God that blows our feeble little understandings. And we come to that attribute that's infinite and we say, Hallelujah, God! I'm so glad that that's the kind of God that you are. Amen? And then we come to the justice of God. We say, Whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Your justice better fit in my paradigm. Here's what's fair. I know. And so God, what you have to do is you have to operate within the paradigms of what my justice is. Why would we do that? Why did I used to do that? When right there, explicit statements in Scripture and example after example is that His justice, His judgments... That's the verse. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable His ways. His judgments blow our mind. They're beyond our understanding. So what we've got to do is we've got to come to the inscrutable will of God, the secret will of God, and we have to do what Paul did in Romans chapter 9 and then in Romans chapter 11 and say, look, God has the right to be God. He has the right to give the hundred bucks to whom He wants to give the hundred bucks. And that doesn't make Him unjust. He's God. You see, over and over and over again, what Paul is saying and what the rest of the New Testament says 
and all of the Bible says is that those just judgments of God, His justice, that unscrutable will of His that's hidden, it's not that it's arbitrary. You see, that's the other argument related to God being unjust that people bring against these two doctrines. They say, well, God just, like I, that's the breakdown of my example, I just arbitrarily picked five of you. That's what God does. He just kind of looks out over the human race and says, okay, that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. No, that's not what God does. What God does is He has eternal purposes. He has it all planned out. He doesn't do anything arbitrary. God has never made an arbitrary decision throughout history. Before time began throughout eternity, He's not an arbitrary God. He's a God of explicit, pure purposes. Here's the problem, though. We just don't know what they are. He does. And we don't like that because we want to know. And God is saying, in His Word, by several authors from His Word, my judgments according to the eternal decrees of salvation are beyond your little feeble minds to understand. But you should believe it because it is everywhere in there. Everywhere. So it doesn't mean God is unjust. It just means that his judgment is bigger than ours, higher than ours, greater than ours. He has a reason for what he's doing, a very good, perfect reason for what he is doing. We cannot grasp it, but we can soak in the reality of it as elect. Maybe just one more worship team, would you come? I've got more objections we'll hit in the weeks to come to answer, but one more, I think an important one. That if election and predestination are true, what happens to the child that dies in the womb? What happens to the infant or the very young child that dies? If they are not elect, do they go to hell? I would say that is the wrong question. I would say that every one of them is elect. There is a scripture referring to David's child with Bathsheba, the child that died, and David made a statement in that that one day he would go to his child He couldn't bring his child back, but one day he would go there. David knew where he was going, and he knew that his child was already there. I believe undeniably from Scripture that every child that dies prior to the age of accountability is covered under the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's not a conflict that you should have with the doctrine of election or predestination. Please stand. My goal, my heart, my prayer for you is that what would happen in your journey here is that you would come to wonder in ways that you have never wondered 
over the incredible love of God who chose you. That it would shock you and penetrate to the depths of your being. That his glory would increase in your view and that that glory would move you deeper and deeper into intimacy with him and more passionate worship of him. Father, have your way toward that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.